Hello, welcome to the Woman by Definition podcast. My name is Kelly J. This episode, I'm talking to Jackie Doyle Price, MP. She is the MP for Thurrock and has been so since May 2010. I, along with many women across the country, was so relieved when Jackie spoke in Parliament early this year about women's rights and the rights of children to keep their bodies intact. Uh, It's a great chat. Um, Jackie's an incredibly engaging woman and I feel a little bit safer about the destiny of women and children in this country thanks to the likes of Jackie who is speaking out about an issue that everyone else is too fearful in government so it's just a joy to talk to her. Jackie doesn't just look at uh, women's rights and the rights of children. She has covered in her career mental health, suicide prevention, vulnerable groups, women and children's health, maternity care, uh, many inquiries, patient experience, cosmetic regulation, and blood transplant and organ donation. Uh, I think it's safe to say if we had more MPs with the backbone that Jackie possesses, the country would be in a much better place as always please don't forget to like share and subscribe and if you so desire leave me a review it makes a difference to who gets to access this information and this content so enjoy it's brilliant thank you so very much for joining me i must say on behalf of women and girls throughout the United Kingdom, what you said in Parliament gave us all the chance to exhale. So thank you very much. Not at all. That's what we're here for. Good, good. Um, I must say my MP, when I asked him to speak up, said uh, it was was far too risky. And I I said, well, what can we do? Because we've elected you to speak for us. And he said, well, we have you, Mrs. Keane Minshall. Yeah, see, this is the thing. We we shouldn't be running away from debates like this, actually, because if if we in Parliament run away from them, then they become defined by the extremes, and that helps no one, uh, frankly. And you know, if you if you take the opportunity just to use your voice, that's what we're elected to do, and we are we are elected to represent the views of you know the vast majority of, of people for whom, you know, this is not a cause they get motivated by, but they are genuinely concerned about it. So I do hope that we can actually address these issues with a little bit more maturity. And it's a shame that so many colleagues do feel scared of getting involved in it. Yeah. Well, let me just tell people, for those who don't know, I made a video about you actually when you did it um, and and saluted you and said, thank you. But for those people that don't know, Jackie stood up in Parliament and raised concerns about women's rights and what we might be doing that's harmful to children's bodies. What what made you, what compelled you to sort of to talk about it in, in that moment? Was was it a build-up or did you did you just come across a constituent? What what compelled you to do that? It, it's, it was um something of a build-up actually. Um, you know, when I was health minister, um I these issues started to cross my desk and it's one of those things until it until it actually touches you you, you don't really know what's going on um so i began to have uh, concerns and then over time you just 
you have a watching brief on an issue and you think well actually there's something needs to be said here and as you'll know that that speech was made on international women's day and obviously you know what better time to talk about the fears i had for for women in that space and and really my particular concern was about girls uh, and about girls because of this you know and perhaps i was fortunate i grew up in the 1980s where actually we we just fought against gender stereotypes and it was great <laughs> you know you could be who you wanted to be and it seems really regressive that we've sort of really readopted gender stereotyping and almost made it a science to the extent that girls growing up and we all know you know going through puberty is not a pleasant time for girls and, and, and some girls will feel very uncomfortable about their bodies and the fact that this this movement is encouraging people to think well you know you might not really be a girl uh, in childhood I just think is so dangerous and we mm. just need to give children the chance to grow up uh, so you mentioned that some of your colleagues haven't spoken about it and and when we say some I guess it's about over 600 <laughs> colleagues haven't said anything about it um this is a creeping up of silencing though it doesn't just happen with one thing um how do you think we're going to break it well some of us have to leave from the front don't we <laughs> so i mean i mean the, the very fact that i have started talking about it has, has encouraged colleagues to speak to me uh, about about what they think and a, a lot of it i think some of the fear uh, of speaking out is because it's, it's such a sensitive subject that people feel uncomfortable speaking out if they feel they don't know enough about it. So we do need to do a lot more to really raise awareness about what is actually going on. Because it's until you're actually faced with evidence, it, it, you know, you can look the other way. Uh, so so that, there's a lot more to be done there. I, I also think, you know, if you take uh, women in the Labour Party, for example, I think there's been so much poison in the Labour Party uh, in the last few years, you know, whether it's anti-Semitism or, you know, that very hard left movement that's been intimidating more moderate uh, members of parliament. I think this is just another issue that they just want to keep their head down. I think there's still a lot of poison still there in the Labour Party and until, until that's addressed, I think women will be quite uncomfortable. Mm. Well, I have friends in both the Labour and the Liberal Democrats who were members who basically were interrogated for an hour or two by party officials for saying that they don't think men can be women. I mean, it's, it's, it's really frightening stuff, I think. It is, and it's become so established that, you know, you know those of us who question it are seen as nutty right-wing extremists. Well, actually, I'm really not. Mm. <laughs> Far mm. from it. And it's, this, is, this is kind of, you know, collectively, we just need to get real. And you know, this it's not about being against trans people, the fact that you want to maintain, you know, we want to keep women's identities. Mm. The two shouldn't be pitted against each other. There's room for all of us. Mm -hmm. And the only people who really want to peddle hate are those on the left who want to portray people like me as, you know, right-wing nutters. <laughs> well, it's it's interesting that you mention how people are portrayed, um, but also how this how this whole conversation is framed and it seems at the moment that there is such a broad sexism that even if you talk about women's space you're not really talking about women's space you're being anti-trans and mm. i think women just need to properly reclaim 
the language and the ability to talk about our rights without it being sort of said that we're really just centering men and we're just a side issue that we're using to attack uh, these individuals on the other side. Uh, absolutely right. And, and it, what's really interesting, you take someone like JK Rowling, who you know, is a master with a pen and she, she writes so elegantly and beautifully and there was nothing that could be uh, construed as hateful in anything that she's ever said on this. But the degree to which she gets that pile on from men Mm. Uh, uh, in objection to this is is classic and uh, again it's 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 so obvious it's so clear uh, but it, it goes unsaid um, I, I think a lot of this is actually because it, a lot of it plays on, on social media and on twitter particularly and twitter is actually just a really horrible place it it ends up being very black and white very binary when actually we need to have a much more nuanced discussion ab about these issues and in a way that, you know, frankly, most trans people just want to quietly get on with their lives in dignity. They don't want to be weaponized in this kind of debate at all. And it's, you know, there's a real duty of care on, on, you know, on the LGBTQ plus lobby to think about that, actually. Uh, because, you know, running around and screaming about this issue from the rooftops isn't the way to, to actually get a good get to a good place in terms of tolerance and and rights and a good application of law mm. yeah i would argue before this debate that most of us probably just were a bit like that about the whole mm. trans everything to do with transgenderism we were a bit like oh if it makes you know if it makes them happy i'm quite happy for them to be happy as long as it doesn't infringe upon my my rights to space um and i would say that this this impetus on uh, trans rights conflicting with women's rights, I think actually it's making some some hardened people very much against the whole of the the LGBT. I think people are, I think it's having a devastating effect on some of the previous gained rights. I think I think that's right actually. And, well, because extremism does, um, and I just it's it's just. It, and again, this is another reason why people don't want to get involved in that debate because it is so polarized now. And you know, you don't want to be seen as being, uh, you know, coming down on one side or another. Mm. Uh, but that's where I guess we have to collectively try need to try and get the debate into better space. But unfortunately, while ever you've got so much of it taking place on Twitter, and an army of people just waiting to seize on on the latest provocative comment to, to to inflame this war it's just not going to happen it needs to be going into the mainstream really and that's that's where people like me need to start addressing these things in parliament yeah i have two big concerns with the whole of this issue one is how insidious it is into education even of primary school children and that is because We've given up our duty of care, our educators' duty of care to lobby groups. And they are very much entangled in every single institution, including government. Um, and we have sort of political symbols now that, that uh, government buildings carry. Um, is there an appetite in government to maybe start untangling some of the um, influence of, of particular lobby groups, do you think? Um. <laughs> Uh, how, how best best to put this really i think you are right you've, you've made a good observation there that we, we seem to have got a sort of uh, culture embedded throughout our our public organizations and 
you know, people are taking advice from respected branded lobby groups uh, as gospel when actually sitting behind that is an agenda. And mm. it means that, you know, particularly in schools, um, it's actually done with the best of intentions, but is actually potentially doing harm. And, uh, you know, I think it's very important, actually, that government does seize this. Um, I know that, again, and it's one of those things that's been so, it's just slowly crept in and, and become a sort of cultural change that all of a sudden it wallops you in the face when you see, oh, hang on a minute. And I think the whole, um, you know, development of materials for relationship uh, education has really brought that to the fore. And, and I think there are, you know, certainly uh, within the Department of Education, there's kind of sitting back and going, oh, hang on a minute, what's, mm. <laughs> what's going on here? So this is definitely something that government, I think, needs to look at because ultimately, you know, the most important responsibility we have is to our children and to keep them safe. And uh, if, we, if, if we find that there are practices abroad that are jeopardising that, then it's incumbent on us to do something about it. Mm. It's interesting, I think the, the culture of the Government Equalities Office, um, since Liz Trust became Secretary of State, uh, you, you might notice some change there. Uh, and again, okay. just Liz, Liz, Liz is a feminist. She's, Liz is a feminist and a libertarian. So, you know, frankly, both <laughs> in, when it comes to this debate, you know, I think that combination, you can't really go far wrong because you are going to be, it's going to be right based, but practical. Yeah. Well, I, I'm sure um, myself and many women across the country are waiting with bated breath on the, the GRA reform mm -hmm. consultation. Uh, I won't press you on that because I'm sure it would be unfair, but uh, I can't wait. <laughs> I really hope it's good news because I, I really can't wait. Um, just on, you mentioned the Equalities Office. Uh, given that we've just seen in the news uh, about MESH, about pregnancy, mm. um, uh, medicines that cause harm to infants, about the fact that there is um, a higher rate than we would like of maternal death, um, and these issues impacting women, uh, whether it be the fact that we can't say what we are without being hauled up in our HR departments. Do you think maybe we could have a women's minister again and, and maybe not dilute it with women and everybody else? Yeah, it's very interesting. Uh, the, I mean, the, the report that came out yesterday, the Cumberland report into MESH and so on, I mean, that, that was actually something that was instigated when I was the minister. And I mean, this is this is a great example of how women get diminished. Um, I decided to see what I could do to improve the lot of women, mainly because, you know, we've all had experiences when we've gone to the, the doctors where we've come away feeling diminished and, you know, patronised and really badly, badly done to. And when I became um, a minister, colleagues would come up to me and tell me their stories and and i just thought hang on a minute we're all members of parliament we're actually quite pushy and stroppy we're quite good at looking at and we all feel that we've been shortchanged at the hands of doctors and so i decided to try and do something about it um alongside what, looking at the, the the examples that the report looked at yesterday and i was convening meetings and what was interesting was that the officials attending the meeting were all from uh, the policy area that looks after uh, maternity and it, <laughs> it just came out that well actually no, nobody's looking at this and it, it, it you know once we're actually you know 
once you get away from women as you know incubators of children we're just irrelevant and nobody's looking out for us uh so i think it's really important that we reassert uh you know, and look at all this area of of you know the fact we are different and the fact we have different challenges because of our you know our reproductive organs you know there's conditions which are far less debilitating than heavy periods or uh, symptoms of menopause that are accommodated uh, much more readily by HR departments when they're looking at how they can support people with disabilities in work. So I, I think there is a need actually to refocus the agenda on women. Um, and, you know, we, it's almost as if now that we've had 100 years of the vote and we've got more women MPs uh, uh, in Parliament than ever, uh, perhaps the men in, in our systems of government think their job is done. Well, it we've still got to do better. <laughs> In, in specifically, um, I know that you uh, started or established a obstetrician and gynaecology sort of focus group. Yeah. And um, with Black Lives Matter and the, the focus on race, uh, what's been brought up is obviously the, the worst outcomes for black women in pregnancy. Has your group sort of got anywhere near why that might be or resolving it any, in any way? I think the very fact it has to be said means it starts it then starts to be looked at i mean we we know that there are pre-existing conditions which make childbirth uh, more difficult uh, and they tend to be more readily observed in in amongst black women which which is what leads to that um but i think generally uh again we don't do enough to educate women about how to look after themselves and, and, and have safe pregnancies. I mean, we have this, for a long time, we've, we've had this expectation that women can have it all, which has almost become women must do it all. So, you know, you're expected to have a career and you're expected to have children and you're expected to look a million dollars. Actually, that's quite difficult to do all of yeah, that. Yeah. And, and the worst aspect of that, actually, is that obviously, you know, if, if as a woman you're investing in developing your career, um, you know, we know that the cost of living is, is, is high if you want to buy property and so on. That, and all these things end up pushing you to have children later and later. And the issue being, of course, that the, lo the longer you leave it before starting a family, the more dangerous it is. So then you find that, you know, family gets to the well, the woman gets to the age of 35 and feels ready to have children by which time fertility is dropped off a cliff uh, and by which time pregnancy is far more risky and i think we just need to be honest about all this because we are leading women to make choices that aren't necessarily uh, the best ones for them and you know this idea that you know you can you can have children whenever you want and you know if you find it difficult go and have IVF well IVF's not a panacea it's not it's not reliable and it's not pleasant and so we just need to really be honest about the fact that actually yeah having a family and childbirth are not easy things and mm. you know we, we as women need to understand what we can do to make those things better yeah I must say, during the election, I was 
quite aghast at the many friends of mine that were celebrating that both the Liberal Democrats and Labour were talking about sort of amazing childcare from six months that, that, or that children could go into sort of 35 hours of, of care. And, and my argument has always been that we don't value mothers as a society. We, we mm. sort of seem to think that, that you know, breastfeeding and, and growing a baby and having a baby and bonding with that baby can be done by just anybody for a start, which I think devalues mothers. But also that, that then you can just sort of pass it on and that doesn't do that. That's perfectly harmless for both children and mothers. I'd like to see a government supporting mothers to stay at home a little longer uh, not rushing out because not rushing out to not a career that you enjoy. If you love your career, go back to work. If that's what you want to do, go back to work. But nobody wants to rush back to a low paid job that they don't particularly like to put their children in to a care facility for somebody else also low paid who may well love their jobs. But I just wonder if if we can have a, a, a re-examination about, you know, children being raised by their mothers and being in a nurturing environment tend to do better late in life yeah it's interesting isn't it because especially the, the those first weeks those first months are so important and you know if we are going to the trouble of you know bringing this new life into the world that's not the end of it is it you know no, very you know, much nur no <laughs> nurturing it has, has got to be part of it and i think you are right i think collectively as a society we've come to devalue uh, motherhood and actually it's the most important thing that we do is how we treat our children to bring them up into, uh, into mature young adults um, so I, I would actually like to see more and you know I can remember um, it, it will be about 10 years ago now that when when the um, pension reforms were coming in and effectively you, know, you used to be able to get your national insurance credits while you were raising a family and that's all gone now and I, that's a retrograde step we like like you say you know parenting ultimately the book stops with the parents and it's actually not for the state to come up with lots of convenient ways to help you put your responsibility of your child to someone else um obviously we want to enable people to pursue their choices if that's what they want to do and if that's what they need to do financially mm. uh but equally you know Children are not accessories. You know, they are fundamentally our primary responsibility. Mm. The only thing my children have done accessory-wise is give me a, quite a few more stones. <laughs> 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 Which they did very well every time. And now that I'm in my mid-40s, it's all coming back again. It's joyful. <laughs> um, so you've done some... I've looked at your, uh, your record and you've done work on suicide um so are you still in that role of suicide no, no, prevention no i i um i was the first minister for suicide prevention um obviously i i left the government uh when uh, boris johnson became prime minister but it's still a, an area in which i have an interest and uh, I, I continue to work with the samaritans uh through the old party group on suicide uh, on those issues can I ask, because uh, you may well have heard these claims by trans lobby groups, particularly to parents, and they do this self-reporting of children who feel suicidal. And I think if I self-reported, probably when my kids were really young, I was hardly sleeping, 
I might have said once or twice, I felt like just driving into a wall because I just thought, oh, it's just too much. Um, and I have perfectly brilliant mental health. Like these are just fleeting moments, but probably if I was 14 and somebody asked me, that would be something I would self-report. So um, leading transgender lobby groups uh, repeatedly use suicide statistics to co coerce the public, uh, teachers, parents, and the Samaritans have said that using suicide or talking about suicide promotes suicide ideation. Um, isn't it this something that, that the government should maybe take a really firm line on because, because it's quite dangerous? Yeah, I, I, I think fundamentally it, it is distinctly uh, unpleasant the way that this issue is being weaponized in this debate. Uh, the truth of the matter about suicide is that every suicide is a very complex story and no organization should be trivializing it and, and reducing it to such a simple, simple, in such a simple way. Um, I mean, one of the things that we perhaps need to do is reboot all, uh, uh, the government message on all this because, you know, we, we shouldn't be allowing anyone to, to use these statistics. And on the issue that the Samaritans raise about ideation, that is so important. What, one of the things that the Samaritans have been really good at is, is uh, getting the media into the right place when they report deaths by suicide. So, you know, that they're, they're not talking about uh, the, the death in, in any detail as to, you know, encourage any kind of uh, contagion. And that's been successful. But of course, this is something that we, need, we don't see in, in the context of, of this campaign. It's very bad practice on their behalf. And I think, you know, I, I will certainly encourage ministers to actually take this up when they have any discussions with, with those groups, because it's just wrong. But, it, but it's become established, you see. Mm -hmm. So you'll get it uh, mentioned on Twitter all the time. Um, mm -hmm. But it's just absolute nonsense. What scares me as well is, you know, if, we, if we're looking at... Um, suicide ideation. Um, one of the things that, that I did uh, obviously take up with social media companies was, was the way that their content is accessed. So uh, you might remember the, 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 the story of, of the girl who, you know, once, uh, once she died, um, her parents found what she'd been accessing on social media. And it, it's because when you when you do searches, of course, you're squirreled off into new communities. Things suddenly start appearing for you to look at. And once you start looking at, you know, how to self-harm, all of a sudden all this other content comes at you. And I suspect the same thing is happening with trans. So people, you know, are confused about how they're feeling, then they'll go, they'll go on to and find communities uh, that, uh, that feel the same way as, as, as they do. And of course, they will also be encouraged to say, you know, to what to do to actually get that treatment and so on. And they'll also be encouraged to think, well, you know, people do kill themselves if they don't get this treatment. So the whole thing is just so irresponsible. Um, you know, I don't want to be an advocate of censorship, um, but I really do think we need to have some ground rules so that people are a lot more responsible with what they say and, their, and the content that they bring. Because we do know that when it comes to impressionable minds, the very idea, uh, once it's planted, becomes real. Mm. 
I almost think sometimes we've gone back to the Victorian era of thinking that children are just mini adults and can deal with everything that we throw at them and can make decisions on their bodies and so on. Um, I don't really know how we put that back in its box, but I think it has to be done. Yeah, absolutely. I, it, it's, it's actually really scary now. I mean, you know, you, you have children, I think they've probably been exposed to uh, material that is far more graphic and pornographic than, than anything that we would have seen when we were growing up. And, and again, all that becomes normalised too. And, you know, we're almost stopping children from using their own imaginations because we've got so much, you know, so much stimulation in terms of, you know, video games and, you know, there's screens everywhere. You can just sort of have this constant uh, stimulating content where actually we just need to be encouraging people to, to run out and play mm. <laughs> and use their own imagination. And it's very difficult to, to think how you can put the, you know, really wind that back. We're, we're going to have to find a way of doing it. Um, I think the key to it is schools. And it's, it's very interesting that, you know, schools, when they look at the curriculum, need to start to compensate for what children might not be doing at home. So they need to be having exercises that do encourage children to, you know, open up their minds and, you know, run about and explore things uh, because if they're not going to be getting that at home so much because they're not going out on their bikes and playing tennis in the road like I used to they're sitting in their bedrooms looking at their iPads uh, which is uh, not perhaps the most healthy way to live. Mm. And I recently I'd, um, interviewed um, a woman called Jo Bartosz who runs a campaign called Click Off which is looking at the harmful impact of pornography on society as a whole um, but specifically also children and we nearly got there where we could try and stop kids accessing this stuff and we know that there are certain things if you have to pay for certain things online we know that there's no way around that so there is there is the technology that if we had the appetite we could stop children accessing porn and in addition to that there, if there was the appetite from government to actually impose substantial fines and criminal proceedings against companies like Pornhub, who put videos out of trafficked girls and sexual crimes, um, I think we should be able to enforce them to hand over their IP addresses of the people that are uploading that content. Do, do you think there's any appetite at all? I keep mentioning the word appetite, but something a thesaurus, but there's got to be some concern that, that people are enabled, enabled to watch literally children being raped over the internet. Okay, my, my former colleague, Claire Perry, was, was huge on this. And, you know, she made it her mission and she spent a, uh, many years trying to tackle exactly this. She, she sadly is no longer in Parliament, so somebody else is going to have to take up that mantle. Um, I think... Well, it's a slightly diff difficult place at the moment because everything is all about COVID. You know, normal government has come to a halt. But we were making quite considerable progress uh, with uh, the online harms uh, discussions we were having with social media companies. And it's still the intention to bring legislation forward uh, in the not too distant future. And I agree with you. I think we need to be a lot harder uh, on, these, on these companies uh, who are enabling crime. Let's be brutally frank about it. Um, 
they will tell you that well the whole purpose of our existence is to be a liberal platforms we are platforms we're not publishers actually that's not good enough um they need to be a lot more responsible for the material that they're that they're carrying and since you know since i can be bombarded with content you know i mean it's it's, it's very sophisticated isn't it I, I can be you know on my ipad and oh up pops an advert for something that i really would wear because because of the way that, that the intelligence is being gathered about what I'm looking at and what I'm buying, that, that you know, I can have very targeted advertisements coming mm. straight to me when I'm on my screen. Now, if that can be done, a lot more can be done uh, to protect people and protect children specifically from uh, content which is just bad and unpleasant. Mm. Um, so, you know, and they, those were the conversations that we we'd started to have in government with uh, the, the main social media uh, companies and they were making progress with it. Um, but I think, I think we're going to have to really reboot uh, this whole agenda once we get COVID out of the way and we need to mm. make sure that, you know, online space is as safe, if not safer than physical space, because at yeah. the moment it really isn't. Well, one of the things she came up with as a campaign aim was to enable the police to use in evidence uh, people's internet history. So if somebody had watched a particular genre of pornography, and um, for your information, there's a COVID genre. Um, oh but if, I know, don't, uh, we won't go there. Um, but um, if, if uh, the police could, so I lived in Bristol when Joanna Yates was murdered, and it was known that the way her body was laid and the particular way it was laid was something straight off of that man's um, DVD collection or internet history. And she sort of thinks because it's very difficult to, uh, to sort of prove absolute links, but there, there always has been a link between sexual crimes and uh, consuming massive amounts of quite harmful pornography. So I think that's, I think that's a, that's a clear goal that I think we could achieve as a country. Yeah, well, I think that's, that sounds uh, eminently sensible. I mean, as, as I said before, you know, I don't really want to be you know, an advocate of censorship, but actually a lot of the material that, that is available uh, in, in, in pornographic space is actually really vile. And, and, you know, in the days of the censor, of course, it wouldn't ever have got we've never got to but it's now so available and uh, I think you know this this is about standards of humanity really um you know we uh, we we wouldn't allow snuff movies uh to be made for for obvious reasons but you know we still have very graphic violent things to happen uh mm -hmm. in the context of pornography and it, it, I think ultimately you know any any uh, penalty you mentioned fines but we just need to have very tough uh tough uh, punishments for, for these offenses because they're just vile and mm. inhumane well if i had some things on my hard drive and the police came to my house that, that some of these massive companies have on their sort of systems that they promote i'd probably be looking at some sort of prison sentence for some of the things that you can actually find on on their sort of um, systems that they they put out that that kids can access. Yeah, yeah. It is, and the, the worst thing about it is that you know, 
as you say, kids see this stuff at a very early age now and they think it's normal. Mm. Uh, and, you know, this is where we, you know, increasingly we're having to have safeguarding policies in primary schools because of uh, content that's being witnessed in the, in the household context by very young children. And it's awful. Do you think ultimately, because uh, I mean, I'm, I'm, as I get older, I'm getting more and more conservative, obviously. Um, and I sort of think that I can't trust government. And I don't mean I don't trust your government. I just mean generally, I can't trust yeah. government or educators or the police or anybody to look after my children in the way that I can. So I've ensured that I've got the blocks. I have a five second rule where, and I have an 18 year old living in my house, but it's still my house. So I have four children and we have a five second rule and they've got five seconds to hand over their unlocked phones because I pay their bills, right? So until they pay their phone bills, I get to look at their phones. Um, do, you, do you think that there would be, uh, would it be useful to sort of make parents accountable for what their children are accessing online as well as the giants who have the power maybe to to stop it i think we certainly need to encourage parents to pay more attention to what their children are accessing online and, and again it's this i think one of the difficulties we have is there is such a knowledge gap between parents and children about it i mean you've just seen i've had my my son helping me get <laughs> set up here i mean um and, and, and that's just a fact and I, I think you know certainly parents when they do discover what uh, their children have been seeing are genuinely horrified so I think there is something that we can do in terms of really you know suggesting to parents how they might keep an eye on what uh, their children are looking at we're certainly looking at what we can do in that space in uh, in terms of uh, the discussions we're having with social media companies and, and they need to spread that practice as well um but i guess you know the tool it's, a, it's quite a blunt tool to say parents should be responsible for what their children are accessing but actually they, they just genuinely need to take more of an interest uh, in that yeah i wonder if maybe schools as part of their um rse should suggest you know maybe when your child gets to year five so when they're about nine or ten that you have a a voluntary attended but pretty much you have to come to this like a parents evening but for that uh, this is what children can be accessing this is the ages at which they access it this is what they're going to see um and almost sort of frighten the life out of parents that if you don't take control of this then your kid will be able to access this I think that's a very good idea, actually. And it's, it's almost, you know, if, we, if we're looking at the potential for harm to children, then, you know, we put steps in to prevent these things. So, you know, and it, it's no different from having a vaccine, really. Mm. You know, if we, if, we, if we spend, you know, millions of pounds on vaccinating kids against, you know, you know German measles or whatever it may be, HPV now, but, but actually the behavioural challenge of using, you know, modern kits... Uh, has its own uh, risks and you know we, we need to make sure that people are alive to them so i think just because it's not a simple medicine uh, it's still it's there is still a good public health requirement to require parents to be more alive to these risks mm. well let's talk about school shall we 
my children, <laughs> my older boys went to a school that was a, an academy and it was the first one that got taken off because they managed the whole thing so badly and they applied for capital funds and those funds were misdirected and they took the school in six years from 250,000 in deficit to 500,000 with the CEO of that academy group taking a cool 250,000 salary. And I, I still quite support academies. Personally, I wish they'd all remained LEAs and we'd really examined it with control from the LEA into schools. But you know that we've, we've gone that way for whatever reason. Um, when do you think the schools stop using the word no to children? Uh, interesting, isn't it? it that, that the whole, you know, the whole area of discipline seems to <laughs> seems to have gone out the window. I, I mean, clearly, we want schools to be supportive environments uh, for children, but ultimately, they are they they are where we still learn and have to learn and have those disciplines. So. Um, Obviously, we have our way of uh, measuring performance of schools based on, on academic turnout. And, and I think one of the beauties of academies, actually, is that they're starting to build their own identity. So if I, if I look at the schools in my constituency, every one of them is different. They're, they all have a very different feel. And uh, which is why, I, you know, I think parental choice to send, to send people to school rather than a catchment is so important because you know if I go to William Edwards school in my constituencies but has a very strong sports focus for example whereas you know the Harris academies are very much focused on you know making sure that you are, are really maximizing your academic potential um, so they're all building uh, that kind of their own ethos in in that way and some will be more disciplined than others um, but yeah, I think <laughs> empowering children doesn't mean always saying yes. Mm. Mm. Well, um, I live in a, I live in Wiltshire and we moved from Bristol and my kids went to a Catholic school in Bristol. We were quite lucky just to get in. And here, if you don't pay and you don't pray, you're a little bit scuppered for a school with a good you know, they've just done a video. One of them has just done a promotional video. And I'm like, just, just get the children to do as they're told. That's all I want. I want my kids to be able to achieve what they can achieve and their potential. Because when they sit in that classroom, they can actually hear the teacher teach. Um, and I keep, I don't know what as parents we can do about that. I can't go in and change the school. I mean, I, I'm hoping to, to move my kids so they don't go to this specific school but um i just wish that we we had more focus on on the little things like the osmosis so respect through osmosis not not respect learn through a circle time and a chat because that doesn't mm. do anything for anyone that's just lip service but i would like to see a chain of command in schools i'd like to see a scary teacher like i had you know, if you went to Mr. Liddell, you could go and see the head teacher was a little bit soft. But if you saw the deputy head, you were so petrified. I'd like a bit of that back. 
Interesting, isn't it? I, well, one of the things that I do when I go around schools and, you know, I, I kind of give my my speech to kids saying, look, you know, you can be whatever you want to be, but you've got to work hard or else you don't, you're not going to make chances for yourself. And one of the things I always say is um, that there's actually really good jobs uh, locally that, you know, you can you can learn as you earn, you know, you can get, a, you don't have to go to university full time mm. to get a degree, you can do it in work. And whenever I do that, the teachers stand there tutting. <laughs> and I think, I think one of the things we've got is we, effectively the, the teaching uh, generation we have now is rather different from the ones that you and I uh, saw, where I was taught by nuns, so that, that, that was a whole new, <laughs> a whole different challenge. Um, but, they, but they were fierce and they were strict and they were disciplinarians. Whereas I think now we are, we have a generation of teachers who've been through the university system the way that it, that it has, and they've come through, and they're they're actually very, for want of a better term, very wokeish and very very liberal and very, uh, it's allowing you know allowing people to express themselves, and and you know I just in a way we we're actually setting ch some children up to fail by not being tougher, to be honest, because you know you can't go through life like that. Um, you know, if you if if you want to uh, get on and do well and, and have some success in your life, that also requires some degree of discipline, mm. um, and we should be teaching that in our schools. I think perhaps we we might actually think about whether we we need to get more people into teaching from other fields, so that we we've, we've not just got teachers who've done nothing but go through the education system and then rejoin it as teachers. Uh, we need to make sure we've got some other expertise in our schools to really open people's eyes. Mm. Maybe just the army. No, I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> I've actually, that's a fair point, though, because some some of the private schools have uh, uh, cadet regiments uh, working with them. You don't find that in state schools so often. Uh, I think I, I've one, one school in my patch, I think it's the, it's the only one that has it. Um, and it actually has brought a good influence uh, to the children in that school. So it's not, it's not a silly idea. It's actually quite a good one. Well, the rigidity of it's yes or no, you either are allowed or you're not allowed, that sort of rigidity, I think, gives children safety. And there's safety in knowing what you can and can't do and what is right and what is wrong. And I, I think we sort of lost that somewhere. We're so worried about self-esteem that actually we're damaging self-esteem yeah yeah I, yeah absolutely i think <laughs> yeah there is there is nothing wrong with being very clear it doesn't you can you can allow people to express themselves and you know you know give them sufficient liberties but but they have to know where there are lines to be crossed yeah absolutely um so i was reading about your involvement in some of the surrogacy laws uh, and I have recently met somebody called Jennifer Lal. Now she campaigns from California. Uh, she's done quite a few award-winning films. And there is now a growing number of children that were donor conceived, either egg donation or sperm donation, that are really quite traumatized in the same way as some adoptees that they never felt that they really fit in, that they looked to their parents and didn't sort of feel that they were their parents and then seek their biological parents, which with egg donation in particular is you might have an egg donor, then you've got another woman that carries and none of those, neither of those women will be legally the mother. And I wondered if, if the government would consider taking a brand new look 
at surrogacy with the voices of these children and women that have been either got cancer or had strokes um, at, as a result of egg donation and whether as opposed to moving forward as quickly as the US seems to be, that we can maybe step back and say, well, we've got a lot of new evidence now of what the consequences of surrogacy may mean to the children that are actually conceived through surrogacy. Do you, do you think that's something that like, the government would consider the advocacy groups that, that want to stop surrogacy? I think obviously the, uh, this whole issue has been handed to the Law Commission to look at and they're looking at it at the, the whole uh, spread of it uh, and the beauty of handling it to handing it to the law commission is that it actually takes the politics out of it and and, right. and they look at they look at it from a very legalistic uh, perspective and i think one of the things that was sitting behind all of that is that the practice uh really in terms of the regularity of of, of surrogacy uh, it's moving a lot quicker than the law can to keep pace with it. I think it's also the case that, you know, the things that you're just talking about, the evidence base of, of what actually uh, happens with this is still, still fairly new. Um, but it, it is done in a very dispassionate way. But I think probably the most important constraint in my mind when, when, uh, when I looked at all this is it's a bit like trans uh, surgery as well is, is, a, is a similar consideration is if we ha don't have adequate law and adequate and safe law here uh, we will actually drive it overseas where it really is the wild west mm. and uh, I mean in, in particular with surrogacy uh, I mean there are some quite horrendous things happening <laughs> In other countries and if, if if people want to be able to have a child in that way if we don't have a way of enabling it in this country it will go elsewhere but it does need to be safe and it, we also again it, it, it comes back we where we find evidence of poor outcomes and harm we need to be very honest about it so that mm. people can make these decisions uh, in full knowledge of, of what might happen i think what again we we start we start from a place where we've developed law based on one case 30 years ago and it's no longer fit for purpose uh, and but when you actually look at what you might put in its place it becomes very very complex so i, I can't remember the time scale that the law commission uh, is working to but they will come with proposals for government which which do look at the whole of this space. And I think that will be when we can uh, have another debate about what we might do about it. Mm. I just find the disassociation between the fact that you use a donor egg, so the woman that carries definitely doesn't have any genetic ties to the baby, but the baby bonds with the woman in the, in the third trimester and through the bones, so the baby can smell the mother when it's born. And it just all, sometimes I think, somebody's desire to have a baby i i don't know what that's like i had four uh, they're all very very easy i can't imagine how heartbreaking it would be and that that urge and that desire would sort of grow and probably encompass all of your being but i think somewhere along the line we just forgot about that baby and the rights of that baby 
And I think it's the same with trans. It's, a, it's almost like a disassociative aspect of the human from humanity. Yeah, it's, it's the I want. <laughs> there's a, there's a, there is a sense of entitlement that runs throughout our society these days that you know, you're entitled to have whatever you want. And if you can't have it, then the state needs to help you get it. Um, that's fine to a point, but we do need to balance that with a proper uh, uh, focus on your responsibility mm. uh, as much as your entitlement. Right, so what should people do, do you think, Jackie, if they, what should women like myself do who would really like that definition to remain, how should they bring a very frightened or woke or otherwise convinced MP? How do you think they bring them on side to understand that women's rights are under threat and it's okay to talk about them and that children's bodies are being damaged by these medical harms that we have no evidence for long-term that they will be effective and cure whatever it is that that child is suffering from. How, how do people approach their MP? What, what do you think would be, what would your advice be? Well, well right to your MP. Uh, I, I can tell you that MPs pay a lot of attention to what arrives in their inbox. And, you know, I mean, I get upwards of a hundred items a day. Um, you'll find that some campaign organisations are, you know, are very good at organising uh, campaigns. Actually, don't take any notice of any of those. It's, everyone sends the same letter, completely useless. So it's just, you just go through the motions responding to that. But where um, people write their own letters and make their own case, and it is the individual constituent telling me what they think from their heart, I take notice. So I would encourage every woman who's really bothered about this to put pen to paper to your Member of Parliament and tell them what you think. Because once MPs realise this is something that people care about, they'll make it their business to get involved. So my message to women everywhere is use your voice and tell your MP what, what you think. And then Brilliant. hopefully they'll come and find me out and we can... <laughs> see what we can do well just well i might just write to mine and say could you go and have a chat with jackie, jackie doyle price please because <laughs> <laughs> i've got oh, michelle donnellan who's absolutely she's a real hard-working mp she's a she's a you know she deserves her seat because she she just deals with very local issues but she's not frightened to tackle the bigger stuff which i think is what we want from an MP. In fact, I always used to think I can't be an MP because I haven't done enough. I'm not good enough. I'm not clever enough. And then I've listened to some and I think, well, maybe I am. <laughs> no, of course you are. Anybody can. You know, well, yeah, Parliament is, you know, it is the representative body of the nation and uh, MPs come in all shapes and sizes. And increasingly uh, now, they're not all white, middle-aged, Oxbridge-educated men, thank God. Um, and uh, we do, we, we, we need good, authentic voices and people who are brave enough to speak out. So have a think about it. Well, what, so what does one do then? What was your journey into it? What made you want to become an MP? Was there like a light bulb moment where you thought, I'm just, I'm going to become one? Yeah, I mean, I, it's very interesting. I, I, you know, I come from Sheffield, the, you know, council estate in Sheffield. I'm not a stereotypical Conservative MP by any stretch of the imagination. But I 
my interest in politics was pricked when I was about 14 and uh, my parents were trying to buy their council house and that's what got that started me off and I got involved in local politics and campaigning at that point and I never really never really left it um, and then it's just it's a bit like you one day um, I was just watching what was happening and I just thought I can do better than this lot I think I'll go and stand for Parliament so I did <laughs> um, I fought my first seat in 2005 and then obviously got chosen to fight Thurrock uh, at the 2010 general election uh, Thorot was not a seat that we that the Conservative Party expected to win um, but uh, you know just by sheer hard graft uh, we managed to take it and I've been there ever since and touch wood I'll be there a bit longer. How do you think you swang them into sort of what do you think you offered? Um, I'd like to think that I'm I know how to communicate with my people with with the people here I'm you know I'm very direct uh, I grasp the issues and I'm not frightened of taking them on and and I speak to people with messages that are real uh, and, and language that's real I think you know sometimes there's a you know, there's a perception that politicians aren't really like us and you know don't live in the real world and don't really talk about things that we uh, that reflects our experiences so you know I, I just make it my my mission to do quite the opposite of that really so you know so if I go back to that 2010 campaign you know my message has always been about you know if you work hard and do the right thing government should be on your side uh, lots of things about you know making sure that people have got the incentive to work rather than live on benefits um, at the time immigration was a, a big issue here which is not and it's not an issue I really campaigned on if I'm honest because um, again it's a bit like the other issues we've been discussing today you can you can end up uh, having a very divisive debate when you don't want one but you know I think the important thing is just to keep it real well I'm so pleased that I got to talk to you today you've been an absolute inspiration like I said, women, I could, I could hear the collective, ah, yes, <laughs> when you spoke. It was just, I mean, everybody shared it. My sort of loyal, labor, green, lefty women were like, have you seen this? And I was like, you do know it's a Tory MP, don't you know you're the side that you absolutely hate? They were like, we don't care. We're just so delighted that somebody said it. So again, on behalf of all of us, Thank you very much for speaking up and thank you for joining me today. No, thank you very much. And thank you for sharing the film because you've made me a legend. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Told you, wasn't she fabulous? I really think we got to the heart of quite a few issues there. So I'm really proud of this particular episode. Uh, don't forget to like, share and subscribe. And if you so desire, leave me a review. Apparently likes and shares mean more people find me. So then more people are informed. Okay, see you next time. As a bonus, I've included Jackie's speech on International Women's Day at the end of this episode. Enjoy. Um, and my final point I just want to uh, tackle is the whole debate around trans rights and uh, gender dysphoria. And I'm particularly uncomfortable that that debate now has become pitted against uh, the rights of women.
It is surely not beyond the wit of policymakers to devise a set of rules and principles that protect the rights of, of trans, uh, transsexuals to, to find, uh, find a way of living their lives and not discriminate against women at the same time. Those of us who want to see women-only safe spaces are not guilty of hate crime against trans people. Not at all. And I will say this, I think people who, do, who, who are trans, they actually want to quietly get on with their lives. I don't think it helps any of them that they're pitted in this terrible, horrible, toxic debate. And in fact, the only people who are winning through this debate are those men, those men, we, men who will use their, their, their power to oppress women and are seeing this opportunity to claim this right to self-identify as a weapon. And none of us in that, this room should, should collude with that. We've already seen the case of Karen White, who self-identified as a woman and went into prison and, and committed crimes uh, against uh, fellow inmates. So we must, we must be able to devise a law that stops that from happening, but also supports those who are most vulnerable and need to have their rights defended. And my final point on this issue, which I think we, again, I think Parliament has failed uh, to really give proper oversight into the growing treatment uh, for uh, transgender uh, interventions uh, for younger people. We've allowed the treatments to develop at the Tavistock really unsupervised, and that's, this is no criticism of the medical professionals there who clearly are doing the work they're doing with the best of intentions. But we really need to look at the ethics of some of this and the practicalities of it, because we are seeing uh, more and more girls uh, being referred uh, for, for gender reassignment treatment. Uh, and when we're talking about girls, we are talking about girls well below the age of majority. And I personally am very uncomfortable. Well, I think it's wrong to, to put forward people for treatment that's irreversible when they are not in a position legally to, to give consent. And I think what we really need to do is, again, be more honest about the challenges of puberty. You know, puberty is horrible. You know, I can remember. I, you know, I can remember growing up. I was a tomboy when it might not. It might, probably doesn't surprise you that I was a bit of a tomboy when I was younger. But you know, when I got to my teens and suddenly felt my body changing, it was horrible. I, I hated every minute of it. I can't believe what might have happened to me now going through that. You know, was was it enough to go and you know, carry on climbing trees and and so on and, and you know playing at being chips rather than Charlie's Angels? But now I'd be on my iPad and I'd suddenly find lots of other people who thought like me. And then, oh, guess what? All these people are going to the Tavistock. It scares the hell out of me. And I, I, just, I just fear we're doing harm uh, to girls when actually this is something that they could just be going through. And it's quite a normal thing. It's just not to be comfortable with what's happening to your body. And the fact that so many of these girls who are going for such treatment uh, are also uh, have, have issues with autism again frightens me even more and I, I was actually contacted by a parent um, just this week who, who thanked me for something that I'd said about this issue because uh, she wanted to talk about uh, the experience she'd had with her daughter uh, who, was, who was on the, on the spectrum and as she said one of, the, one of the classic symptoms of autism is that as a, as a sort of self-defence tactic is you become a different personality. So when you think about that in the context of puberty and a, an unhappiness with what's happening to the way your body's changing, of course it would be a natural response 
to pretend to be a different gender. So I really think we have failed in this House, that we haven't given sufficient scrutiny and debate to a treatment which, frankly, if it is given out wrong, will do real harm to those girls and boys that go through it. And I hope this is something that we can actually give more attention to in future.